So since Pentecost, which is the celebration of the uh, gift of the Spirit to the church, we've been looking at um, what the Gospel of John primarily has to say about the Holy Spirit of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John probably has the most developed understanding of the Holy Spirit, maybe followed by Luke. Um, So we've been spending a lot of time in um, John chapter 14, 15, 16, but another big feature of John's Gospel is there are four resurrection appearances of Jesus, which are quite, quite vivid and colorful. The first is Easter morning, when Jesus is outside the empty tomb and he's mistaken as the gardener. I think that's a hoot, that's a good one. That evening, Jesus appears to his closest disciples, minus Judas. That's the second, Judas and Thomas. Um, the mood in that appearance is, is fearful. Um, and then that's paired with a third appearance, which is a week later, kind of same channel, same location, only this time Thomas is there. And the mood is now shifting to like wonder and awe. So you see like a progression in the appearances. Sometime later, an indeterminate time later, Jesus makes breakfast for Peter and some of the others. And he has this walk with Peter. And you see things are kind of normalizing there. It, it's not like all all this high intensity stuff. It's, it's warm connection, uh, working things out kind of thing. There's a development as people are getting to know Jesus in this new state. So of, of those four um, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, um, the second one features more of his uh, perspective on the, on the spirit. And the second one is paired with a third. They kind of happen in the same place and they're, they're closely connected. So we're going to kind of treat them as a unit today. And that's the text that you have um, on your sheet of paper as you came in. So that's what we'll be looking at. And you can use that as a, as a resource. I'm just going to read and comment on the, on the uh, text as it goes along, from, you know, verse to verse. And like we did last week, just pay attention to what in this scene intrigues you or you find yourself drawn to, or you're curious about, and use that as kind of a clue, and then bring that part of the text into our little time of quiet uh, reflection or meditation at the end of, of our time here on the message here. So, you know, there's just basically six key words you might want to pay attention to. Fear, peace, send, breathe, forgiveness, and scars. That'll kind of represent the things we'll be touching on as we go through this. So beginning with the first of those verses there on your sheet, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. No, it's super important uh, for Gentiles um, in the 21st century to understand that the uh, author of the Gospel of John uses this term, the Jews. This is not like Breitbart news. This is, this is it's a technical term referring to the Jewish opponents of Jesus at the time. Some of the Pharisees, not all of them, the high priests in, in this case, and the temple authorities who were kind of running the temple uh, precincts there, which is a big deal. The, they, the latter groups were very much backed by the power of Rome. This is what that term is, means in the context that John uses it because Jesus was Jewish. All his followers were Jewish. Certainly the author of uh, John's gospel is Jewish. His Greek is very limited compared to the other gospel writers, so it's almost certainly Jewish. Um, and in John, uh, John's gospel, Jesus is referred to as rabbi, the term of uh, endearment and respect for a Jewish teacher, like, I don't know, 39 times. In the other gospels, it's a handful of times. 
It's really important that that be understood uh, in, in context. The mood of the disciples, uh, because of this fear, what's been going on in Jerusalem this Passover, is fear. And keep in mind that the uh, crucifixion is, was designed by Rome to traumatize not only the crucified, but especially the witnesses. It was a public event. It was meant to traumatize people. It had a political purpose. It was to instill terror of the oppressive power of Rome in the witnesses, um, which it has in this case. The disciples are traumatized. They're terrorized. They don't feel safe in Jerusalem. They don't, they don't even want to go out for a smoke. They're in that kind of a state. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Uh, we know that the Hebrew concept behind this Greek word peace is shalom. It's rich with connotations. It's peace, it's rest, it's reconciliation, it's uh, living in harmony with God, living in harmony with the creation, living in harmony with other people. It's, it's like a full-orbed word, shalom, peace be with you. And the Jews had like a mystical sense about peace. That was like their thing. Shalom was like a Jewish thing. And they had a kind of a mystical sense that it was like, it was something that we, are, we can give each other. Like I can give you my peace and you can give me your peace. And, and that's actually like, you know, neurologically sophisticated, right? Because we now know by the mirroring system in our brains that we give each other anxiety that we actually catch anxiety from other people. A person doesn't even have to open his mouth. And, and if they're anxious, you'll feel it, and you'll be feeling the anxiety that the other person has. And the same thing works with peace, actually. The non-anxious presence, like, is contagious. If you've ever been to ER with a loved one or you yourself, and you don't know what's going on, and you're anxious, and the doctor comes in, or the nurse practitioner, or the physician's assistant who's like their thing is being in the ER and they're confident and they're assured and they start talking to you you just calm down immediately we can give each other our peace it's transferable in that mystical kind of way and that was very much part of the Jewish understanding of peace so Jesus is just practicing that peace be with you expecting that it's going to have an impact on the people who hear it it's not just a uh, kind of a you know the ritual greeting after he said this this is important right after he said that like as soon as he possibly had their attention he showed them his hands and his side Jesus wants them to see his scars and this is a really important part in this whole section that you have on that sheet in front of you uh, John makes a big deal of this by featuring it in the third appearance a week later which is really paired with this one so we'll talk more about that later but just note that he showed them his hands and his side he took the initiative he wanted them to see his scars that was important to Jesus then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord so I, I like this because the gospels are very um, you say sophisticated about how people had trouble perceiving the risen Lord. Like, it wasn't just an automatic, oh, there's the risen Lord. They, they had trouble perceiving him. In Luke's gospel, it says their eyes were held, like they were restrained from perceiving Jesus when he appeared to them. And it's, in this case, it's not until after their fear abates a little bit 
that they actually see Jesus. Um, it's like fear is not a perception enhancer, isn't it? You know, it's like um, fear is not about stopping and smelling the roses. Fear is about getting the hell out of there, right? You know, so we're not we're narrowed in our perceptive abilities when we're under the influence of fear. And you see that here. The fear has to abate a little bit, and then then actually they see, they perceive. Oh, it's the Lord, and it's like Jesus is like, okay, now peace be with you. Like he's, he's going through it again because they're starting to actually make contact. They recognize him. He starts over, so to speak. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Classic Jesus. These guys are terrified. He's given them like the smallest little bit of peace with his first, you know, peace dose. <laughs> but remember, to these guys, it is a very dangerous world out there behind those closed doors. I mean, it's a trauma-generating world for them right now, personally, concretely, specifically, practically, not conceptually. And now what he's doing is he's sending them out there. So this is a big thing that he's uh, asking or doing. But we have to remember, too, just think how powerfully reassuring it would have been to them to see Jesus, who they last saw, you know, being crucified, and to now see him alive, calm, peaceful, and thriving. Like, in, in the resurrection appearances of Jesus, he's doing great. And, you know, during the, during the Gospels, he, you can, he's stressed, he's tired, he's irritable sometimes, he's in conflict, he's, he's you know, giving it to, to the Pharisees, he's, he's, he's frustrated with his disciples, he's, it's not like he's like happy-go-lucky Jesus all the time, he's, he's in a struggle. But now he's not in that kind of struggle state, he's in a, he's in a state of being like fully alive and he's thriving. I think the only post-resurrection appearance where Jesus is distressed is when he comes to, to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, he's feeling the suffering of the people who are suffering in his name and, and it's, it's bothering him. But generally, he's in great shape in the resurrection appearance. And he's alive. And like, no one had ever done that before. It died and then been alive in the way that he was alive. This is not like a re resuscitation alive where often people are like almost worse off than when they started. But he's like fully alive. And for them, they're just beginning to take this in. It Certainly it opens new possibilities that Jesus, who suffered so much, is now alive. That just, that, that if death is not the ultimate disaster, but it's a doorway into this kind of being alive, well, that, that, that sort of changes the equation. That opens up some new possibilities for the world. I don't know, um, if, if you suffered a sudden loss, if someone you love died suddenly, the early grief dreams you have are of the loved one are kind of disturbing. Um, this happened with um, uh, Nancy's mother, uh, Dolores, died suddenly, and then Nancy died suddenly. And for, for, for like, uh, like it was months, 
I would, I would have a dream of both about our mother-in-law after she died and then with Nancy where they would appear but they'd be dead but they'd be still moving and alive and it was just, it was distressing. It wasn't comforting at all. And it was like my brain was just trying to like make sense of this person that was so alive not, not being alive to me and I was, it was just, it, the whole thing was just like, oh, I don't want to have any more of those dreams. Um, later, after that kind of trauma of the sudden loss abates, then you might be blessed with one of those dreams where, oh, there, there's Nancy, and she's really Nancy, and she's alive, and she's doing great. And those dreams, like, yeah, those are really comforting uh, dreams. Um, Caleb Brokaw um, was on our board, our church planting board. He's a key support to me and Emily when we launched this church. And then he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and in a, in a matter of a few short months, he, he died. And I noticed that maybe about six months or so after Caleb died, and I, had, I was so bothered by, by him dying, and Matt dying, and these key people that I loved and cared about, Sue Eckstein dying, it all happened, it, that just pissed me off. And I didn't like what was going on. Um, but after I kind of went, cycled through that, I had, looking back, I think I had three dreams um, of Caleb, and they were these good dreams. And each one of them, like he was like so Caleb. And if you knew Caleb, he, he had a Calebness that was just, he was just an awesome guy. And he was that like on steroids in the dreams. Like he was so characteristically Caleb. And it was so comforting to just see him so alive. And in the dream, I knew that he had died, but I was seeing Caleb alive in the dream kind of thing. In fact, in one of the dreams, he gave me some very specific theological help. I was, I was reading a book about the resurrection by James Allison, the only gay Catholic priest who's openly, outwardly gay, and he hasn't been defrocked. It's like, he, this guy's a miracle. He's a René Girard scholar, and, um, and he's written some really great stuff, Unbeing Liked is one of his books, a great title. Um, and he had a thing about re the resurrection. The way he was talking about it was different, and I was like, what do I think about this? And so Caleb shows up in the dream and I asked Caleb about James Allison. And he's like, oh yeah, for sure. And it's like, he, he's experiencing this. He can, you know, and it was, it was actually quite helpful theologically for me to open up to James Allison's particular theology of the resurrection. I had a very blessed prayer time um, six years after my dad died. It was roughly six years and it was, I think it was on a Sunday morning, which is a weird time to have a good prayer time. It must have been pretty early in the morning. And you know, my dad had his struggles. But in this prayer time, I had this feeling of my dad sitting next to me, like his spirit or whatever. And I knew that he was totally fine. And I, it, this, I, I swear to God, this was like the best therapy, like expensive therapy with an awesome therapist that you feel totally comfortable with. And I, I realized that there was a part of me that was just wound up because I worried about my dad for, for as long as I can remember. And it wasn't was until six years later that I realized, with that sense of him sitting next to me, being so fine, that I just like let that worry part of me just unwind and had a good cry and it was awesome. And oddly, my dad said to me, I felt like my dad said to me, oh, St. Paul is here and he's fine too. 
And, and it actually helped me read the letters of St. Paul. Like, because St. Paul is such a tortured soul. I was just bothered by his writings. And I was just able to relax and kind of absorb what he had to say. And it kind of helped, helped turn my understanding of St. Paul. Thanks, Dad. All to say, don't underestimate how reassuring it would have been to these disciples to see Jesus doing better than ever. It was a powerfully calming thing for them. When he had said this, now we're getting into the saucy part, you know. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The context of all this is this fear that he's kind of working, you know, trying to beat this fear back for them, kind of impose, as it were, his calm to them. Um, And what they're afraid of is what's on the other side of those closed doors. And so after this second dose of peace serum that he's given them with the second peace be with you, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, It's not as weird as it sounds. I mean, it sounds kind of weird. Um, it's not as weird as it sounds. Um, the very first divine human encounter in the Bible is God kneeling down, breathing into the human's mouth, and the human becomes an afesh, a life, a life is animated, a, a living soul, a living being. So this is very much in the imagination of Israel, that God is the one who breathes his life into you, and then... You're alive with like the life that originates with God, um, and of course in the Hebrew as in the Greek, uh, mentioned this, uh, you know, the same word for wind, breath, and spirit. So the translators just pick one when they're when they're translating it. It's all kind of of a of a piece in the Hebrew imagination. So this is the language of um, personal, intimate encounter and connection. That's what this. Breathing on them, receive the Holy Spirit. Like, think of your close enough to another's breath encounters. I can remember as a kid um, having this encounter with my dog, Duchess, the golden retriever. And I was like in her face, you know, you're wrestling with the dog. And and I was like in her face and she was breathing her hot breath. And I was just feeling it. And I had this, I know it, it wasn't gross. It was like a cool moment with me and Duchess. And... And I, I had this awareness that she and I were like co-creatures. You know, like, it wasn't just like a dog. This was like a, another creature who breathed like I, I breathed and whose breath was like any breathing being's breath. And it was like a moment I had with the animal kingdom, if you will. Um, or if you've had an encounter with, you know, human breath, like, uh, you know, taking care of a, of a baby and the, you get a whiff of the baby's breath. I mean, that, you know, where it's sweet and it's like, oh my gosh. Um, or like a teammate in a huddle. You know, you're in a team and you're together in a huddle and you're, you're conferring or whatever and you're that close and you have that kind of a breath encounter or, or uh, the optometrist is checking your optical nerve, you know, in the dark room, taking, you know, the bright light and getting right close up to you and breathing and you're feeling the optometrist's breath and you're like, I don't even know 
her name and you know, we're, we're having this moment together or a lover's breath you know there's we have these human encounters of the breath well there's also a close encounter of the third kind there's feeling the divine breath um, and it's super helpful to, to feel the divine breath from time to time um, it's especially helpful in you know helping us kind of get beyond that door that is keeping us from everything that we're, we're terrified about. And we live with that terror all the time. Um, I like this idea of breath because it's usually a breath encounter like that, if you want to use that language, is fleeting, right? It's just like it's a moment, it's a breath. Um, it's not like you're walking through a wind tunnel of the spirit. It's, just, it's like a little dabble do you kind of... Uh, encounter. Um, I think I mentioned before, to me it's just such a great example of Martin Luther King when he was in his, in his house and he was, he was getting phone calls threatening to, for his home to be firebombed, that he's worried about his kids and he's just got, he's gotten roped in to being the leader of the bus boycott and, and he has that moment where he sits down at the kitchen table and he, you know, and all this like heady theology and he had never had like that divine encounter before and he just like, God, what am I supposed to do? And he just had like a voice like, Martin, you know, keep going. It's, you're going to be okay. And that's what he needed to just keep going on. That's like a breath encounter moment. I, 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 went, um, I went up north with Julia and um, uh, I heard about something at church that, that was just like an average dime store problem. And for some reason, it was really stressing me. And I was fussing over it. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Then I was, oh, it was up here that I first heard about, I got some really bad news in my past, my professional pastor church life past, where like everything felt like it was falling apart. And it happened in that, in that space. And I'm, I'm getting like a triggering thing here with this, this minor thing. And I just took some, I took some time to pray. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm being triggered. This situation is nowhere near that situation. And I just felt like a little divine breath. Like, oh, you're part of a team. You can figure this out. This, this, this is easy. This will be easy to solve. You don't have the answer right now, but you'll get the answer. It was just like that. Happened in three seconds. And it just changed everything. And that kind of encounter is... Yeah, I see some of you nodding your head. It's, just a, it's a normal thing. It happens, and it's so powerful, and it's so helpful, and yet when you break it down, it just so, seems so ephemeral. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then this part, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I think the whole like Catholic understanding of pronouncing forgiveness and all has kind of maybe a little bit cluttered our perspective on this. I just want to take the plain sense of the words there. I think John is tying these three things together. He's sending, Jesus is sending them out. He's breathing on them. And then he gives forgiveness instructions. Those are all connected uh, in one kind of event. Now, Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus gives different um, forgiveness instructions to the disciples. They're more like, you better forgive. 
It's like he's leaning on the disciples to give. The context of those instructions are usually they're fighting with each other. It has to do with their kind of everyday annoyances with each other. That, you know, that just stuff happens between people. And like, man, if you, you better forgive. How many times? You know, seven times? No, seven times 70. This is just going to be a thing you're going to have to do if you're going to get along with human people. Trust me, I have a lot of experience. It's, it's like you better forgive instructions. But the situation now is different than that. Um, and the instructions are different. Uh, they have been subjected to a lot of negative, hostile attention. Their um, lives have been endangered by what's going on in Jerusalem this Passover season and the kind of scapegoating mob that is swirling and forming. That's a scary, scary time. You know, the, Lorinda's mention of the election and the feelings, that's, that's that scapegoat. Oh my God, this could kind of get out of control. That's, that's, the, that's the feeling they're having on steroids. They've been uh, traumatized by seeing Jesus lynched which is all about putting people who are connected to the victim on notice, watch out, you could be next. It's terrorism, you know, in its, in its rawest form. They're like subject to this when he says this. And, and notice he uses the forgiveness instructions to help them understand. I think that they're really in the cat seat. They're not on the, in the mouse trap, so to speak. They have power to forgive those who threaten them or to withhold forgiveness. And he, he emphasizes here their prerogative in forgiveness. You can forgive. <laughs> you have the power to forgive. And if you do, they're forgiven. You have the power to retain their sins. And if you do, they're retained. He, he's not talking about what, what, what God does in his forgiving. God's his own agent. He's free. He does whatever he wants. He, she, who, whatever. Um, but... He's talking about the injuries that come our way from other people. We're for, it's our prerogative to forgive or to not. And he's setting it up with that sense of like our prerogative. He's empowering us with this. Um, I think Jesus is framing forgiveness so they see it from his perspective as it's the power that he's giving them actually over their enemies. The power they have over their enemies isn't the same old like retribution or, or retaliation. Their God power is not re retaliation. Their God power is this power they have to forgive. Uh, and, it ha and it's freely, which means if they have power to forgive, they also have power to withhold forgiveness. And in a sense, it's up to them. He's empowering them with this. Their mood has been cowering fear. His mood is, we're in the cat seats here, you know. All is well. New possibilities are opening up. You know, when you've been through an ordeal involving people doing you harm, it's important to see forgiveness as a form of your power and, and God's respect for you to use that power as you choose to use it with those who have harmed you. Forgiveness is not acquiescence. To the, uh, to the people putting the screws on you. It is not acquiescence. There's, there's not a shred of that in the New Testament. Um, remember, the harm and the violence they have witnessed is, is of that scapegoating variety. And what that breeds on is all about cover-up. 
cover-up is all about denying what has been done to the scapegoat, the gross injustice of it, the awful, reprehensible nature of it. You know, let's pre you know, pretend that wasn't really so harmful, that we excluded that person. It was for the good of the larger good. And, you know, and it's assumed that, you know, they'll, they'll be okay. No, it's horrible. It's awful. Um, it's not acquiescence. The, the, the scapegoat thing requires cover-up, and forgiveness does not participate in the cover-up one bit. Emily has been so helpful for me in, in seeing this and understanding it. I, I was mixed up about this. She, she set me straight. <clears throat> it's not denying the harm done. It's not saying the harm is justified, blah, blah, blah. Forgiveness and calling people out are not mutually exclusive. The great example of that is uh, Paul in the, in the uh, book of Acts. He's constantly being interrogated by this group of authorities or the other. And one time, I think it's in Jerusalem, he's in, uh, interrogated, I think, by the Sanhedrin, as, as religious authorities, including the high priest, who during, while Paul is testifying, you know, he's like defending himself against whatever the charges were, are, the high priest orders someone nearby to, to gobsmack Paul. You know, smack him right in the mouth. Hit him in the mouth, that hurts. Paul does not acquiesce. He erupts. You whitewashed tomb. You claim to be the guardian of Torah, but you violate Torah by ordering to be, me to be smacked like that. And like, you are the man. <laughs> like you, Paul, you know. He's, forgiveness is not acquiescence. Let's keep going and finish up on the scars. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. When you read Mark, think scars. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Tom answered him, my Lord and my God, etc. So this is a lot of emphasis on the scars in these two appearances together. If you, if you say, what is really the dramatic emphasis here in this whole thing? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the, it's not the forgiveness. It's the scars. This is what John is emphasizing about Jesus. It's coming from Jesus himself. It's reinforced by Thomas. The language, he's repeating the words, put your finger. It's maybe three different times that whole thing is repeated about the scars. It was important to Jesus and to the disciples who had these stories preserved that there be a record of what happened to him. That was important, that there be a record of what happened to him. The story in Jerusalem is that Jesus got what he deserved, that he was guilty, but no, he was, he was scapegoated. There's a difference. And injustice was done, and though it's forgiven, it's not covered up by the gospelers. This is, remember, part of this long project undertaken by God with the people of Israel to unmask this whole thing which is based on the cover-up. No. 
the scars are an enduring record of what Jesus suffered. They're an eternal witness um, that are like against the cover-up. The Messiah suffered unjustly because that's what we've been doing to our scapegoats in the found, since the foundation of the world. It's our primal sin and it's got to stop. It's being unmasked. The jig is up. That's the whole narrative here. The fact that the risen Jesus has scars also, I think, potentially, can reassure us that even our own scars um, can be incorporated into a thriving version of us. Uh, even our scars can be part of a thriving version of who we are. That, that we're not ultimately diminished by what we suffer. We're actually dignified for having survived to tell the story. And that's part of who we are. And, and that's connected to God becoming incarnate in Jesus. Like we share that with Jesus. It's not just we sad sacks, you know, who have these horrible things happen to us and it kind of, you know, screws us up and damages us. No, um, the suffering servant, the Messiah, has scars, big ones, you know, like in his wrists, big ones, in his feet, and they didn't wear socks, he couldn't cover them up. You know, his side, there was a long scar. And if anything, he's proud of the scars. He's showing off the scars. You know, the thing about when you really suffer badly is you're in this weird position where you're concerned about the damage it did to you. you know, do you know what I mean? You're like, ah, that, that sucked to go through that. But what's really bothering me is the sense that I've been damaged by this. And that's like, ugh. That's not the end of the story with the scars. The end of the story with the scars is Jesus appears to his friends and he's like, hey, look at my scars. I was like this as a little kid, you know, I was always showing off my scars, you know. I put my hand in the escalator when I was two years old and it started tearing this all up and my mother shrieked and pulled it out and I had this, you know, skin flap here and here's the scar to show it. And I'm like, junior high boy, like, you know, I fell in the bathtub when I was, you know, in eighth grade and I, and I, and I deeply gashed my knee and it was bleeding all over the place and my sister came running upstairs and I didn't want to be seen naked by my sister and so I closed the door but it was, I'm bleeding like a pig and I'm hopping and howling and she pushes the door and she looks inside and she says, oh, Kenny's bleeding and then it's a big scene and I'm, I'm, now I'm barricading the, the door against my mother and my sister and it's a great story and I and, and and if you know if you catch me with my bathing bathing suit on which is not a pretty sight I will show you the scar and I'll tell you that story and it's like a it's like a it's like a thing but these are he's talking about the deepest scars that we experience that maybe we will come to regard our own scars in the same way that Jesus regards his scars that would be a good thing amen Okay, we're going to have, uh, Caroline's going to lead us in communion in a couple minutes, but we're going to have our little time of quiet reflection as promised. So you can just, uh, take that sheet if you'd like to as a little reminder or prompt of the, of the text. And we'll just take maybe 30 seconds to center down and, you know, get comfortable. Close your eyes if you want to. Just focus on your breathing 
and then I'll, I'll give you a verbal prompt and then you can just let your eye rest on that part of the text where it felt like maybe God has something more for you and just sit with that for a couple of, uh, a couple of minutes, okay? Let's just start by focusing on our breathing for a half minute. I just take a couple minutes and spend time with a piece of that that was speaking to you. Okay, if you want to just open your eyes and return to normal awareness.